If, you, if you've ever gotten away and felt that loneliness, I think that's just a sample, just a little bit of what Christ went through in the study tonight, what we're talking about. He knows what it's like to be alone. He knows what it's like to be abandoned. And uh, the panic, the fear, the stress that sets in. You know, it's interesting. I read an article not too long ago, well, years ago now, but about the psychology of being lost in National Geographic Adventure. And one of the things they said is, one of the worst things that people do when they get lost out in the wild is they make themselves more lost. They just start walking off, not thinking. They don't sit down. And then eventually, after being lost for some time, most people that have been lost and they found dead out in the wilderness, they found propped up against trees or rocks with their shoes off. Interesting what the psychology of being alone and being lost feels like. And I want you to know, Jesus went to that cross so that you and I would never be lost. And that's what we're going to be getting into today. So let's start in verse 26. Mark 14, verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Jesus had left from the upper room with the disciples after having that Passover meal, and we call it the Last Supper now. He had instituted this new covenant that we practice now um, regularly on Sunday nights of uh, communion or the Lord's table. And uh, as they were walking out, and of course you can get more, some different parts and bit, bits and pieces from the other gospels. And of course you get a lot of Jesus' teachings in John starting at uh, 14. You get a lot of teachings of Jesus from, from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane through seven, chapter 17. But as they're walking to this Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives, which is one of the favorite places for Jesus and the disciples to go, Jesus shares this truth with the disciples. He said, they will all fall away. And the, the, interesting, word, the interesting thing about this passage is the word in the Greek, Greek for fall away is skandalizo. And what it means is Jesus was telling them that you will all take such offense, embarrassment of me, that you will leave and, and fall into sin. That you'll be so offended by me, so embarrassed by me, that you, it'll cause you to sin and leave. And so the disciples knew full well what he was saying. And, and there's not us, not us. We, we won't do it. And, and of course, later on, we see that Peter does this very thing. But he says that, that for it is written in Zechariah, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after... I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. So there's two parts to this prophecy. One, the disciples are going to fall away. They're going to be embarrassed by him. They're going to be offended by him and leave him in sin. And then the other part of the prophecy is, but don't worry, I'm going to be raised up and I'll go before you into Galilee. Remember, Jesus is the good shepherd. Shepherd always goes before his sheep, always. He never leaves them nor forsakes them. 
And so there's two parts to this problem. Of course, the disciples completely miss the second part. They focus in, they key in on that first one of failure. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to fail. No way. And Jesus said, yeah, you're going to fail. In fact, you're going to fail in such a way that it's really me who offends you. That's hard to believe. But you know what? I think we can see this today, right now, churches who are offended by Jesus, churches that are compromising, turning away from the Word of God because they're offended by it. The offense of Jesus Christ is actually causing them to sin. It's actually the point at which they're sinning. And the pressure, the pressure nowadays in the United States of America is great. I was looking at Facebook, and oh my goodness, Facebook has blown up over the last couple days with the Supreme Court ruling, hasn't it? Everybody's keen in. People are unfriending people, and it's like, whoa, this is, this is intense. And I was telling my wife, I was like, you know, maybe it's just because everybody knows I'm a pastor, so they just like, just don't say anything. I don't, I don't know. But um, obviously, I have my opinions about it. But here's what I do know. I don't agree with it, and I have good reasons for why I don't agree with it, namely the Word of God. But I'm open to that discussion, and, and I want to encourage you if you want a discussion about this on why God doesn't agree with it and what hashtag love wins actually means, I'd love to open that up to you. The wonderful thing about a small fellowship is we can get together and we can talk about these things. I, can't, I don't want to talk about it from the pulpit because you know what? The gospel isn't about your sexual orientation. The gospel is about your sin separation. That's what the gospel is about. And that's what I want to spend my time up here speaking about is that you have been separated by sin from God. And the good news is that God has provided a way for you to return. God has provided a way to bring you back to himself. And, and that's what it's about. But if you have questions about these things, please, I invite you. Let's have a roundtable discussion. Let's go to coffee. Let's talk about these things. And, and I know you're like, well, I don't want to be embarrassed by the past. That's not going to embarrass me. I love talking about this stuff. And I love sharing with you some of the, the complications of these decisions and, and whatnot. And it's not about bigotry. So don't buy into that stuff. But the pressure of our world today is so great, just like the disciples. They were embarrassed. What were they embarrassed about? What were they offended by about Jesus? Well, maybe he wasn't the Messiah they wanted him to be. Maybe it was that he didn't take a stand against the, the Sadducees or the Pharisees. Maybe it was just pure pressure. I don't know what it was. But what we do know is they did fall away, and Jesus at the same time gave them this hope, but don't worry, I'm going to go before you into Galilee. You may fall away. You may get lost. You may be embarrassed by me at times, but guess what? I'm not embarrassed by you, and I will always love you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The promise of Jesus Christ. The pressures are great, but I hope that you won't be embarrassed by the Lord Jesus Christ because as much as our country wants to try to make things legislate the heart, as much as our country desires to try to make everything even across the board or, or try to force people to be more loving, it will never work. You can't legislate the heart. And if you could, then we would still be living under that covenant made at Sinai. You know the Ten Commandments? I mean, when you think about the Ten Commandments, they're not that hard. Well, maybe the first couple are more hard, right? Love the Lord your God and Him alone. Okay, well, you know, all right, I'll do that. Uh, and, but when you think about the Ten Commandments, you're like, hey, these are pretty good. 
They're, they're actually, if, if we look at all these, don't lie. Yeah, I, can, I agree. Don't, lying's not a good thing. Uh, adultery, don't commit adultery. That, that's not a good thing. Murder, don't, you shouldn't murder. Yeah, well, we all agree with that. Murder's not a good thing. And if we could do it, if, leg, if we could legislate the heart, and you and I were capable of being obedient to the law, we wouldn't need Jesus Christ. But we're not capable. This is where we fall short greatly short. And guess what? You, me, we're all in the same boat on this. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. That's just what it is. We've fallen short. And so Jesus tells them they're going to fall away. Peter says, not me. I'm not going to fall away. No way. And Jesus said, oh no, you're going to do even worse. You're not only going to fall away, but you're going to completely disown me, Peter. You're going to disown me. Man, I... I have been in places in my life where I have denied the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, I definitely didn't do this bad, but I know how bad I felt after I did it when I was younger and I was trying to be a part of the crowd or even when I worked in construction at one time. I remember I was uh, an apprentice. We were working up in a lift and I was working with a journeyman um, uh, doing electrical work and we we're talking and he's and the subject of religion came up and I was like, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. But see, I really wasn't a Christian. I was just a, a fair weather, lukewarm sort of like I grew up in the church. I'm a Christian sort of thing. And I'll never forget him saying, oh, you're one of those Bible thumpers. You're one of those Jesus freaks. And, and I, I knew the guy really well. And so I was like, no, no, I'm not totally into it like that. I mean, I think there's some, like some good principles in there, but I'm not sold out or anything like that. You know, I'm kind of open to all things. And um, I really, to this day, regret those words. I regret those words more than any other words I think I've ever said in my life. Because today, if I could go back, I'm like, yeah, I'm totally one of those Jesus freaks. Yes, I am absolutely one of those Bible thumpers. Whatever you want to call me, because I'm completely sold out for Jesus Christ, because he died for me. He ransomed me from the grave. So, Peter denies him, and if we'll go down, let's go ahead and skip down and read a little bit more of this passage. Uh, we'll skip down to verse 50. Look at what happens after the garden. It says, and they all left him and fled. This is when they came and arrested him. It says, that, uh, as far as the disciples go, and they all left him and fled. Verse 51, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And this, what we believe is this is Mark writing himself into the gospel. Um, none, none of the other gospels have this message. And honestly, this is kind of an embarrassing thing. But I think Mark put this in there, letting us know that, yeah, I was there too. But I'm the one who ran away naked. And, the, and it says, and they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest and was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Let's skip down to verse uh, 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed and the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystander again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he, he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. 
And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. You know, uh, this passage, only Mark records the rooster crowing twice, Jesus' prophecy, and only Mark actually records this. And a part of that is we believe that Peter was the one telling Mark, uh, Mark's gospel is an account of Peter. So, as, because Mark was working with Peter, and so, so we, we clearly believe that Peter adds these extra details into Mark's account because he will never forget them. He will never forget them. And you and I know that when we failed, when we failed big time, all we can do is, <clears throat> sorry, all we can do is break down and weep. Because not only have we betrayed the ones we love, but we've also betrayed our convictions, we've betrayed ourselves. And so this is what, G what Peter remembers, that he's done this, he's disowned it. But I want you to know something, and we don't have it in Mark's gospel, but we do have it in John's. In John's gospel, Jesus, just like he says, goes before them into Galilee, and Jesus picks out Peter, um, who's out there back fishing, and, and Jesus, <laughs> Jesus breaks this tension between him and Peter, Peter uh, realizes it's Jesus. Jesus gives him a command to throw his net on the other side of the boat. He gets this great catch of fish, realizes exactly who it is that, who's talking to him from the shore. Peter just jumps off the boat and swims in. I totally liken it to that scene in Forrest Gump when uh, Forrest Gump is so excited to see Lieutenant Dan. He just jumps off the boat, you know, and starts swimming. The boat keeps going and crashes. Anyway, Peter swims into the shore, and it's that awkward, like, hey, how's it going? Baby Matthew's pretty excited. He's singing hallelujah in his own voice. But Peter, Peter and Jesus have this moment, and Jesus restores Peter. And he asks him that question, how much do you love me, Peter? And he gives Peter three opportunities, just like he had three opportunities to disown Jesus. Jesus gives him three opportunities to be restored, and he does that. And I want you to know our God is a God of restoration. That is the whole point of the gospel. The goal is to restore you to God. Restore you to that position that we all lost when Adam and Eve took that fruit and disobeyed God. That is the goal of our God, restoration. Not to make you feel guilty, not to put guilt trips on you. Guilt is no good. Restoration, that is good. And that is what God's goal is. So let's go ahead and go back up to verse um, uh, 40, or I'm sorry, 32. And they went to the place called Gethsemane. So the disciples they, and Jesus, they came out um, through the Kidron Valley. They crossed over the Kidron Brook. And by the way, the Kidron Brook, this is kind of an interesting image I just want to set before we get into the Garden of Gethsemane. The Kidron Brook, during this time of year, it would only get water at certain times of the year. During this time of year, part of the drainage for the temple sacrifices would come into the Kidron Brook and take the blood away from the city. So this image here, Jesus stepping over this brook of blood, this red water flowing from the temple, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, 
on the night of his betrayal, stepping over that, walking up to the Garden of Gethsemane. And by the way, this, the, the word there, Gethsemane, literally means olive press. That's what it means. And it was the place in the Mount of Olives where they would pick olives and they had stones there to press the olives. And so an olive goes into a press. I mean, you can eat an olive, but there's no real value in olives. But there's value in olive oil. In order to get the oil out of the olive, you've got to get it in a press and press down the, the pit of the olive because the oil comes out of that pit. And so as, as you press down that, those olives in the olive press, the oil comes out of it, and that's where the value is. And so Jesus goes up into the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, and I just want you to see the imagery here. Jesus is the one who, as Isaiah 53 says, is crushed for our iniquities. He's, he's, he's been crushed for us, just like that olive oil. And, and just, I, I just want to take this, I, you know, you can't really apply this, but I just want you to get the, the symbolism here. The Holy Spirit in the New Testament and in the Old Testament in the anointing is often referred to as oil. That's one of, the, why we, one of the reasons why we put oil on people and we anoint people with oil. It's a symbolism of the Holy Spirit coming upon. And it's interesting that Jesus said that unless I go away, I cannot send the helper. And so uh, we're going up into the Garden of Gethsemane to the olive press. And, um, of course, from Jesus, we, uh, from him being crushed for our iniquities, we receive the Holy Spirit. I, I just wanted to throw that symbolism out there for you. I, I don't know what you can do with it. I just think it's cool. So, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch and going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were too very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. As they enter into this Garden of Gethsemane, you know, we don't have a clear account of how many hours passed during this time. But here's what we know. As Jesus was entering into the Garden of Gethsemane, the weight of what was about to happen was coming upon him. And we're not just talking about a torturous death. We're talking about becoming sin. He who had no sin became sin for, for us, the Bible tells us. That Jesus himself would become sin in our place. The weight of that was coming upon him. And it says that he was so sorrowful, so filled with sorrow, even to death. The burden that he was beginning to take upon himself. And notice what he says to the disciples. Remain here and watch. Just stay here and watch. What was Jesus going to do? He was going to pray. He knew the burden that was coming upon him. And he knew the only way to bear up this burden was his relationship with the Father. That was the only way he was going to be able to deal with it. 
the relationship with the Father and through prayer. And notice his prayer. He prays that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Daddy, Father. Now, this is interesting. Jews would never cry out to God in such an informal way. They'd never say Abba, Daddy. It's a familiar term. It's what my little girls say to me when they come up to me, Daddy, you know, oh, it melts my heart, you know, what do you want, anything, you know. Um, but it, it's that whole idea that if Daddy, Jews wouldn't pray that way. They'd refer to God as the blessed, Elohim, um, Adonai, but not so informal. It's interesting, after this time in the garden, what, what uh, the Bible tells us that Romans 8.15 says this. It says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Not just, not just Father, Father, in, oh, Father in heaven in a formal sense, but in an informal sense, Daddy. We can cry out to God because of what Jesus did on that cross for us. We've received a spirit of adoption through Jesus Christ. And we can cry out to him, Abba, Daddy. And that's what Jesus teaches us right here in the garden. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not I will, but what you will. All things are possible for you. Not, um, remove this cup. You know, think about that for a minute. If there's any other way than me becoming sin... And becoming the sin for the whole world. Maybe we could do that way. You know, maybe there's an eightfold path we could establish and we could do that. And through this eightfold path, if we keep these things, maybe that would atone for sin. No, that's not the way. Maybe, maybe there's some sort of a, a journey I could do. Maybe some sort of trek that, that I could purge myself of evil or something like that. And, and that could be the way to restore Men to the Father. Nope, that's not going to work either. Maybe there's, nope, there's no other way except by the shedding of blood that men can be saved. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's no other religion in this world that makes you into the righteousness of God. The religions of this world, what they promise is feel better about yourself, maybe change your habits, do something good, but there's nothing that atones for what you've already done except the cross of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that takes the sinner and makes him the righteous. Not in this world. Because the fact is, you and I know that if we've done sin, that stain is there. We can't go back and erase it. We can't erase memories. We can't, I mean, sure, we can try to be better people, but the sin is done. The action is over. It's happened. The separation is already there, and it is only by the cross of Jesus Christ that you and I can be made righteous before God. There is no other way. And Jesus praying this prayer, Lord, if it's possible, of course, all things are possible for God, not I will, but what you will. Remember how we talked about prayer, uh, I don't know how many weeks ago, but when we talked about prayer, we said prayer is about us aligning our will with God's. And I think it's so interesting that Jesus, as he prays this prayer, he basically says, whatever your will is for my life, I will do it. 
I wonder, do you pray that prayer? Whatever trial, whatever pain, God, I'm willing to do it if it's your will. I know you, I'm assuming you're like me where you're like, okay, I love you, Lord, but maybe not the pain part. I love you, Lord, but let's kind of skip past this part of it. See, Jesus is in perfect relationship with the Father and knows the Father perfectly. He knows that the Father is good and will have good, good come out of all of this. So he's willing to say, whatever your will for me, I'll do it. That bubbling sound that you're hearing is the baptismal back there. <laughs> I, just heard, I don't know if you heard it, but I heard it. Um, whatever your will is, I will do it. I, you know, some of our earthly fathers haven't made a good example of that for us, have they? Some of our earthly fathers will, have taught us to duck and to hide, to get away from. There are definitely times where I didn't know that I could trust my earthly father. I, you know, I'm not sure if it was going to be a hug or a swing or whatever it was, and I had to duck away, hide, get, get out of the way. But not so with my heavenly father. My heavenly father is perfect. Jesus knew that. And he's willing to say, whatever the cost, I will do it. Can you pray that prayer? Or are you still afraid that maybe whatever God's plan is for you, it might not be good. Maybe I need to hold on to life. Maybe I need to keep my life to myself. Maybe I need to continue being the Lord of my life versus putting God in the driver's seat. Putting God saying, okay, you go. You tell me what to do, I'll do it. Because I trust you, God. That's what prayer is all about, aligning our will with the Father's, getting in touch with the Father, knowing, God, what do you want from me? And so Jesus prays this prayer, and he, there's no other way, but notice how he, he finishes praying this prayer, and he comes back with a new resolve to do the will of the Father. That's what prayer is really about. Prayer keeps us in, in connection, in relationship with the Father, Desiring to do his will. I wonder if you go to the Father when you're challenged by the pressures of this world. Do you go and say, Lord, I'm having a hard time with this. I'm having a hard time on how to deal with this issue or this pressure or the pressure to change or the pressure to get rid of your word. Or I'm, I'm having a hard time. Or God, do you, do you love people the way I love people? Do you go to God in prayer and ask him those things? I want to encourage you to start because I think if you go through prayer as you are challenged, as you face life's trials, you'll come out with a new resolve. You'll come out with the ability to say, okay, I'm, I'm ready to do this because I've gotten back in line with the Father. So he came and he found them sleeping and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray. You may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Man, I wish I could say I'd be praying, but I have a feeling I'd be sleeping. It's interesting. The disciples are sleeping. The enemies of God are plotting, looking for an opportunity. And the disciples are asleep. Jesus says, watch and pray. We saw at the end of the Olivet Discourse, he said, stay awake, watch at the end of his prophecy, how important it is for the church to be watchful and prayerful because your enemies are plotting. 
And I don't necessarily mean enemies of flesh and blood. The Bible's clear on that. Our enemies are not of flesh and blood, but the principalities of this world. And if you don't believe me, check out Daniel. Daniel's waiting for a response from the Lord, and we see that the, the angel coming to give the response, Gabriel's tied up in spiritual battle for, for a month almost. He's tied up, trying to bring this answer to Daniel with the enemy, the prince of Persia, it says. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, and we need to be wise. And by the way, I can't help but think that Peter is thinking of this time when he writes his words in his epistle, be on your guard, the devil, your adversary, prowls around like a roaring lion waiting to devour its prey. You have to know that Peter's thinking back to this situation going, yeah, Jesus told me to be ready, to be on guard, to be watching because I have an adversary who's much wiser than I am and if I remain in prayer, if I remain watchful, if I remain connected to the Lord and in his word, I'm more likely to be able to stand my ground. But otherwise, I may be found asleep and devoured. I, I have to think that Peter's thinking back to this time. Are you watchful? Are you praying? Because the fact is, your spirit, you may be saying, man, I love the Lord. I want to worship the Lord. I want to worship the Lord. But there's something about our flesh that kicks in and all of a sudden we find ourselves doing something we said we would never do. Peter said that, not me. Hey, these guys, these guys might fall away on you, Lord. They, they might be offended by you, but not me. I'll fight for you, Jesus, right? Watch, you, you're asleep, Peter. That's what happens. You, you may be all willing and excited, but our flesh is weak. I wonder, when you pray, do you have trouble staying focused? I, you guys probably aren't like me, but sometimes when I sit down for my devotions and I open up the Word of God and I start praying, I, uh, I have trouble focusing. Um, you guys probably don't have this problem uh, because you're probably more spiritual than I am. No, you, you know how that goes. I'm flipping it because that's what people say to pastors. And it's like, no. We have the very same problem. As soon as we start to pray or open it up, something happens, the phone call comes in, the distraction, oh yeah, what about this? Oh, I gotta turn that off, or oh, I gotta go do this, or you know, I'll do that real quick. And then before we know it, we never even got to that time with the Lord. We never even got to that prayer time. You know, like let me just set up, let me set up the perfect setting, okay. Mood lighting's right for the meeting with the Lord. Okay, I've got music on, oh, coffee, hot cup of coffee. Okay, this is perfect time for the Lord. Oh, I gotta go uh, tomorrow. You know, we're, we're off, right? Now, watch and pray. Give yourselves over to prayer. And I'll tell you, sometimes I, I like to pray when I go walking with the dog. Um, I like to pray when I'm driving. Um, can you do that? Yeah, you can actually pray without closing your eyes. That's possible. <laughs> so don't close your eyes in prayer while you're driving. That's a bad idea. But I, I think some of the disciples' best prayer time later on in the book of Acts is be walking between cities. They had a lot of time to pray. 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 Pray out loud. People might think you're crazy if you're driving talking. <laughs> That's okay. You can look crazy. But pray. Be on your guard. Watch out. Ask God, Lord, is, it, is there something I need to be aware of? Lord, is there a weakness in my life? Trust me, the Holy Spirit will show you. 
Be on your guard, because the flesh is absolutely weak. And again, he, Jesus went and prayed. Then he comes back. There they are sleeping again. Then, 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 then he comes back. They're sleeping again. That's their favorite thing to do. And then finally, we see he comes back. And of course, during this time, this when uh, we're, it records in the other gospels that Jesus had sweated drops of blood during this time. The stress was so great. But notice what he comes back with in verse 41. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayers at hand. He's all of a sudden, he's come back with this resolved. The distress has passed. Now he's ready to deal with it. Notice that when he was on trial, and if you remember from the day, and of course we'll get to it, he, we don't see him sweating. We don't see him stressed. We see him answering because he's, he's ready. He's been praying. Going back to that prayer for you, I can't tell you how important it is that you don't trust in yourself, but you trust in the Lord to fight for you. Often, our prayer is reactive versus proactive. Things are going great, <laughs> so we don't make time for prayer. But then all of a sudden, life falls apart and we're being reactive. Or we've fallen into sin in some way or some temptation and we're being reactive. Let's be proactive in our prayer. The disciples were there sleeping. You know, Jesus knew full well what was coming. Do you think the disciples would have been sleeping so much if they really knew what was going to happen? I don't think so. In fact, later on, we see them having all-night prayer meetings in the book of Acts. A complete change. So let's be reactive in our, or proactive in our prayer and seeking the Lord. Let me go ahead and finish up here. Um, Verse 43, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12 with him in a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And so Jesus is here saying, okay, the time has come. It's no surprise to him. They all come out. He's got, they've got some Roman guards there. They've got some of the temple priests, the swords and clubs. And, um, of course, we know from the other gospel, Peter draws a sword and cuts off the uh, servant of the high priest's ear. And Jesus is kind of, he actually rebukes them for cutting off the servant's ear while he's healing him. He heals him. And, they, they, of course, John's gospel gives us his name. Uh, so, and it, that whole idea is to go ask him, right, if you're curious about this. And then they arrest Jesus. And they take him in. And, of course, Jesus asks this question, why do you got to arrest me in the middle of the night? Am I some dangerous criminal? Am, am I some guy that you've got to be afraid of? All right, let's just do, get this over with. And so it goes on to say, verse, let's go to verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. So here they are looking for a reason to put him to death. 
They don't find any. Verse 56, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimonies did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked, Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now I'm going to pause there for a minute. This ridiculous court that they're holding, it's such a sham. They're finding, okay, we've got to find somebody to testify against Jesus. And they're getting all these false testimonies. They're not even agreeing, but they don't want the truth. They want the lie. They want to put to get death Jesus because he's causing too many problems. He's shaking up everything they believe. They don't like him. So the high priest asks him, finally, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Now, up until this time, Jesus has never publicly said, I am the Christ. Okay? He hasn't said it. And I think a part of that is he doesn't want anybody to get the wrong idea about Messiah. They've got their ideas about Messiahs and what Messiah will do and who Messiah is And Jesus hasn't ever said it. Notice what he says here in verse 62. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That's a direct quotation from Daniel. So here he says, I absolutely am the Christ, the Messiah. The reaction of the high priest isn't, hey, let's look into this more. It's he tears his garments, verse 63, and the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards, the guards received him with blows. Man, Jesus spoke the truth in this court of falsehoods, and they hate it. The darkness will always hate the truth. Don't be surprised when the darkness hates the truth, when the darkness rejects truth. It's always going to hate the truth. Don't be surprised at that, Christians. Don't be surprised. But understand this. The, the Bible's clear that the truth is what sets us free. Jesus Christ is what sets us free. Remember Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. It is truth that sets us free. Free. It's, it's the truth of us recognizing that we're a sinner and we need salvation. It's the truth of recognizing that Jesus is the only means for that salvation and I've got to surrender. When we come to that truth, then we can move into, Lord, I need you. I need you in my life. I need to be forgiven of these things I've done wrong. I, I need to be made new. I need to be cleansed. These are truths that will set you free. The world's truths will continue to heap on burdens upon you. I'll tell you, sin is tough. Sin in the darkness is even tougher. But when it comes into the light and you've lost it all, when sin in the darkness is exposed into the light, there is something so freeing about that. There's the ability to start over, the the ability to start new. And I promise you, if you bring your sin before the living God, he will give you that opportunity to start new, to be born anew, to be born of the Spirit and no longer of the flesh. Man, 
They spit on him. They beat him. They put a bag over his head and prophesy. Prophesy who's going to hit you, and they punch him. This, the shame that he had to endure for sinners, for sinners like you and me. But it was all worth it. <laughs> the author of Hebrews says this, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Who for the joy? Who is that joy? It's you. It's me. It's sinners reconciled to living God. I hope you'll know that hope in Jesus Christ. I hope you'll cry out to him because it's only him who can give us a clean conscience. It's only him who can purify us. And I hope you'll know that when whoever the Son of Man sets free is free indeed. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for loving us, God, even when we, when we weren't ready to love you. God, all my life, you've loved me. All my life, you've called to me. And much of it, I've rejected you. Forgive me for that, God. Lord, forgive me for any sin I've done against you. The knowledge of you. Thank you that you died for me on that cross. You pray that prayer if you're ready to be reconciled to God. Just say, Jesus, I need you in my life. I'm tired. I'm done with being in charge, and I need you. Lord, restore me. Reconcile me. We thank you, dear Jesus, that you were willing and able to take this cup of suffering to become sin for us so that we could become righteousness. Bless each and every one. Bless our worship. And we ask this in your name. Amen.